0: di
1: what is music here's one definition from the oxford dictionary vocal or instrumental sounds or both combined in such a way as to produce beauty of form harmony and expression of emotion musical tastes aside that's a pretty good definition but let's look beyond the dictionary We may discover that music can heal emotional wounds, it can relieve the suffering of homelessness, it can even save lives. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life, where you will learn two powerful related skills to grow and transform your life and business. One, You'll learn how to change the inner narratives that rob you of your power and replace them with narratives that make you unstoppable. And two, you will learn the storytelling techniques that will make all your marketing and sales messages irresistible. One of the best ways to change your story is to read great books. Our sponsor is Audible, and they're offering you... As listeners to this show, a downloadable free audiobook of your choice, you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and choose your free audiobook today. Also go to www.changeyourstorypodcast.com and on the home page, download the book that I have created as a gift for you. The ebook, Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. I heard a mind expanding thought from an exceptional marketer, Alex Mandosian. He said, you can't get what you don't give away. If you're here and getting value from this podcast, give yourself the gift of giving that value away to others. Go to Change Your Story, Change Your Life on iTunes and leave a brief review which can be a comment about your biggest takeaway from today's episode and add a five-star rating. This will help the show to climb the iTunes ranks and reach more people. Thank you in advance for doing that. Today's guest is a man who loves music. He's a musician with magna cum laude degrees in piano performance and creative writing. He is also the founder of Music Care Inc that helps people with the healing power of music. In 2014, the National Council for Behavioral Health honored his work with an award of excellence, the behavioral health equivalent of an Oscar. Get ready for a new appreciation of music with Bill Protsman. And Bill, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. And did I pronounce your name correctly?
0: (laughs) Yes, you certainly did, Lewis. I appreciate that. It's great to be here.
1: Wonderful. So let's begin with who was your greatest influence when you were a child?
0: Well, this is going to sound really cliche. So anybody who's in my boat, you can appreciate it. But it was my mom. And the reason is because she is a piano teacher. And she started me, I was student number one, at the tender age of three years old. I still remember the songs I learned back then. It's crazy, but I do. And because of that, I'd have to say, mom was the greatest influence. She was always there, from that point to my senior recital and beyond. So, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, because music has become your life, so there's no argument there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. true. I mean, I've been influenced by other people. I mean, certainly as you're a musician, you're an actor. Uh, There are people that help form your style and your viewpoints and your outlook on life and your work ethic. All of that goes into it, too. But hands down, it's mom.
1: Fantastic. Did you have a childhood dream of who you wanted to be when you grew up?
0: (laughs) You know, I probably did. Um, I, I really envied my friends who were like on the path from an early age. And that wasn't me. It was fun playing the piano. You know, I I didn't know if I was going to be a musician when I was learning to play or whether I'd play professionally or anything like that. But I had a whole lot of fun with it. And it was certainly something that stayed with me, I guess you could say. I was in a Dixieland band in high school and most of those guys don't play anymore. Mm. But I'm still out there playing ragtime in Dix- Dixieland and just, you know, I'm loving it.
1: Mm. It's working. <laughs> so when did, how did music actually become your main passion? Like when, at what point?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I, I used to tell people that that happened when I was giving a piano recital really early, maybe nine, ten years old, and I was the last one, and I played this piece of music, very simple music, and after I played, I saw my teacher uh, smiling and in the audience and clapping, but something else was going on. She had big tears coming down her face. Mm-hmm. And that got my attention because... You know, as, as a little kid, you don't understand how people can be happy and sad at the same time. It takes some life experience to get that part of you, uh, to, to connect those dots. And, um, oh my gosh, so that got me curious. And over time, since then, it's been a long time, I've been able to, know, to learn more and more about why that happens and how powerful it is. And, uh, you know, music is such a rich thing that researchers are using music to study how the brain works. It's not really how the brain responds to music, they just want a stimulus that does something really cool for the brain, and well, sure enough, music does that. So, uh, here we are. Uh, the, the science and the, and the passion have joined together, and they're actually making good stuff happen, and uh, science can tell us a lot more now about why our brains respond the way that they do to music, but it's not just the brain, right? It's, it's the heart. And uh, when you're talking about using music for exercise, it's physiology. Um, and all of those things are all in there, uh, mental, emotional, physical, even spiritual is there. It all responds to music. And you can unpack that and use it. So uh, first awareness, yeah, when I was that little kid at the recital. And it continues to con- now now. There, there's so much more that we don't know about how our human bodies resonate to music. And we're, we're learning it. We're learning it. And thank heaven for the researchers, you know. They're incredible. They're just amazing on this stuff.
1: I agree. And it's it's much more than how our bodies respond. I mean, we are energy. We are vibrational energy. And that's exactly what music is. So it's no surprise to me that when we hear it and we feel it, that it begins to change us. It can elevate us. It can take us down. It can take us in many different places. It's very, very powerful.
0: Yeah, every cell in our body resonates. I I got to go to a concert, like EDM, electronic dance music, you know, it just like hits you. And I could feel like my internal organs jumping around every time that bass drum hit. It was that powerful. Mm. And and that's kind of an obvious power. (laughs) But in a micro, just the sound of your voice, you're you're touching people when you speak. you know, The the sound waves that you create are reaching out and, and they're causing a vibration to take place at a very microscopic level inside my head and uh, that's that's hugely powerful so you know use it well with great power comes great responsibility right
1: well what's interesting what you just said is because um, my whole podcast is about storytelling but for me every aspect of expression is telling I mean every part of us is telling a story and voices just the voice alone Forget the words. The voice is telling a story.
0: I'd love to try that sometime. Um, My wife, for example, is taking French, and she likes to watch French um, comedy, whatever, in the actual language without subtitles. Mm -hmm. I have a really tough time following it, even though I know a little bit about French. But I can feel the inflection. So I agree with what you're saying. And it'd be fun to try, like going to see a Chinese movie, for example. I don't speak Chinese or even try to think in it. But I'd love to know if I could pick up what's going on from the sounds. You probably
1: could. It's it's not only the sounds. It would be the reactions of people to what they've just heard. Yeah, yeah. That that will create a context for you to begin to follow the story.
0: I, you're an actor. Have you ever like acted in English in front of people who don't speak that way? Let's see. Just as a lark or whatever?
1: Hmm. No, but we did, well, this is very interesting, you should mention this. I was in a groundbreaking production, I mean, this thing won awards, we traveled to France, to Belgium, to Scotland with it, and what it was, it took a traditional play, the play was called Wojciech. I happen to
0: know an opera by that name. Is it yeah. the same story? Okay. So I think it's the
1: same story about the soldier, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: So the play, the way we did it, the director had this brilliant idea. That character is a character whose life is manipulated by forces outside of his control. Yeah. <laughs> um, is it okay if I go off on this little riff? Of course. I okay. love this. This is a great story. So... <laughs> What he did, the director decided, instead of just doing it with actors, we're going to have three levels of manipulation. He had this booth above the stage where the actors were actually sitting there with their books in their hands, dressed as aristocrats, and they were reading the script in French. He wanted another group of actors who were not French-speaking, but who understood enough of it to be able to function in the play. And that was, I was one of those. We were manipulating these life-size puppets, and we were on the stage with them. So the puppets were the actual actors. So the what what the... The reader would read the script. We were supposed to respond not to the absolute literal word-for-word word script, but to the emotional energy of it and then manipulate the puppet to express that. And what happened was that after about five or ten minutes of performance— the audience didn't see us anymore, even though we were on stage. Yeah. They were following the story through the puppets.
0: That is, I mean, my skin's crawling just thinking about this.
1: Well, here's a weird one. <laughs> we had a person come backstage one night and say, how did you make those puppets change their facial expression? Ooh. Well, they didn't. They couldn't. No, they, they, these these were like these were these masks that were sculpted, so oh the voices and the emotion of it translated into what the puppets were doing with their movement made the audience see them change facial expression, made them see them cry. I mean, it, it was incredible.
0: This is this is fascinating. Um, this means that music is not the universal language. That uh, let's let's call it sound.
1: Sound and its emotional content.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that you say, or the way that you express the, the, the sound itself carries the content, the emotional content. Mm-hmm. And so convincingly too that the people watching actually thought facial expressions painted on masks changed.
1: I know it was it was remarkable. Uh, we did this at the National Arts Center in in Ottawa, in Canada, and. Uh, uh, at that time, the prime minister was uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and he actually came backstage to congratulate us on oh, op- on opening night. Yeah, I mean it was it was quite a quite an event. But anyway, this is interesting. We are already off on a riff, and this is about you, this podcast. Oh, so <laughs>
0: it's, it's the same thing, though, it's because that that the content, the emotional content of those sounds in French, you know, there was there was literal language content too, but unless you understood that, you didn't. You didn't dial into that. You dialed into the sound and the emotional content of the sound, which is the same thing as music.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was really fabulous. Wow. So when did you first discover the healing power of music?
0: Oh, no, that's an interesting question. Um, I know everybody says that, but this one is truly interesting, uh, at least to me. I don't think I took the same path that most people do when they encounter the power of music for the first time. Um, I was raised in... Of spiritual uh, Christian science. It's still out there. But the idea that you could change your physical effect by what you thought uh, was something that I grew up with. So I was open to what was happening with music at an early age because while there's not a lot of thought in the receiving of musical sound, there is the emotional component, like we've been talking about. And the way I discovered it, Lewis, was that um, you know, I, was, I was a loner. Most classical pianists who grow up that way, um, you don't have a lot of social connections because, let's face it, most of your friends aren't you know practicing classical piano players. So I was alone by, by myself a lot and um, found that the way that I could express emotion best was at the piano. In my family of origin, we didn't have an emotional language that, was, that had a big vocabulary, and there were a lot of feelings that were just not allowed. Um, you couldn't be too sad. You couldn't be angry. You couldn't be scared. Um, those things you'd, you'd hear people saying. I can hear my my parents' voices right now. Don't be don't be sad, Billy. Right. So there's a little bit of sadness that's allowed. But if your job is diving into classical music and pulling the emotion that's there up for everyone to hear, I'm part of that too, and I feel those things too. So I found that my first experience with the healing power of music happened in my own ability to bring up emotions safely at the piano mm. it's a very small and compact thing and when you first discover stuff that affects you i think it is and then over time of course it gets bigger and you start to wonder why and then you start to show people how it works and but that awareness so that that for me happened i'm sure in adolescence when all the other things you know go crazy The hormones start changing, and your voice changes, and just all this other stuff. Well, part of that was this awareness of how safe it was to be with my feelings at the piano. Roll forward a little ways, and I began to be very aware of how other people were able to dial into those feelings as well. Maybe not the same feelings as me, but they were having feelings because of the music.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's
0: what got it started for me.
1: That's fascinating. That really is. And now tell me, uh, tell us, what was your darkest moment?
0: Oh, (laughs) so you're talking to a guy whose favorite classical composers are the dark ones, Rachmaninoff and Brahms and Beethoven, and just that heavy, beautiful, rich, and very um, full of angst music. I know some people don't like the operas of Wagner, but that music is just so elegant in its ability to dive into those deep emotions and allow us an opportunity to um, to recover them. So I've been going into this dark place uh, for a long, long time. Uh, I've practiced it actually, I've practiced going dark. And it's okay once you get familiar with it to go there, but if that's your job, you want to keep going and go deeper and deeper and deeper and see how far the rabbit hole goes and in at least two cases in my life I've been very grateful for music as my lifeline Um, one case in particular in 2007 um, I was ready to end my life and music is the thing that quite literally saved me so in in those really dark times it feels like I have a friend there when I can pull the music with me. And I, it, it's strange to say this, but I almost welcome those experiences now because I know that there's richness there for me, provided that I'm willing to survive them. And I generally, as you can probably tell, choose to stay, keep breathing, and survive those moments and see what they have for me. And more importantly, how I can bring that richness back and recreate it for other people in performance.
1: That's wonderful. Can you uh, summarize briefly how the music at that moment saved your life?
0: Of course. Uh, My discipline, if you will, when it comes to experiencing feelings I don't want, is to take them to the piano and play them if I can. If not, if a piano isn't available, I can put them on my, you know, on my smartphone and listen to stuff there. So, um, that particular evening I was feeling very dark and, um, I had spent maybe about six or seven years in intense study of the way that music works on us physiologically. And there's great hope in that study because we, we can't help our response to music. It's going to happen, put on music and we're going to respond some way. So I took my own medicine and I put on a piece of music that I love, happens to be a piece that I play. It's by Rachmaninoff. And, um, And just sat in a comfortable chair and let the music play in my headphones. And I must have been there for hours. Um, Initially, I remember weeping. And I must have fallen asleep, still crying, because when I woke up several hours later with the music still playing in my head, the urge to uh, take my own life had subsided. And I was more like, well, I'll give another day. I can do this tomorrow. you know. And uh, I went to bed got a good night's sleep and when i woke up when i woke up lewis oh my gosh so i when i woke up the next day there were words in my head you know how that inner voice that we have is always doing some sort of a dialogue or a monologue Mm -hmm. mine was a monologue that morning and i just i just wrote it down i started to write down the words and i realized along as i was writing that this was the words were there uh they were lyrics to a song and it didn't take long i wrote them all down and uh, I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. You know, I write poetry, but this is much more musical. What? what where's the music? What's the music to this? And um, I went to the piano and started to work some stuff out. And by noon of that morning, uh, I had a complete song. It was all done. So whatever had happened the night before had released something in me. And this was the result. It's sort of a... Disambiguous result I mean, you're thinking of killing yourself, and then the next morning you're writing music, right? Well, maybe, maybe not, because a lot of people work through those dark issues in an artistic way, whether that's through acting or writing or um, improv, which is something I'd love to try someday, or through music, uh, playing it the way that I do or composing. And so it, in retrospect, it doesn't seem that strange. But the thing that kept me alive, that's the magic. And the only thing it took from me, really, was the willingness to allow music to do its work, whatever that might have been. Uh, there, there's, I, I've since learned that there's some discipline involved in that, and that I did the right thing by picking a piece of music that I love, because the music we love is the most powerful for us, whatever that is. But just allowing my system to be with that, let my emotional content of that evening have a safe experience without needing to be expressed in an act that could have ended my life. So separating that experience and allowing it to be with me, to be in my body, to be in my ears and in my heart and allow those emotions and everything that was with them to come up, to be experienced safely... I think, was the intervention that kept me from expressing that in the form of suicide.
1: It was so powerful what you're talking about because what you experienced, uh, it feels to me like you took a destructive energy and transformed it into a creative one, um, which is what a lot of life and growth is about.
0: Oh, you said it. Exactly. Life is is that. I'm I'm convinced. I've I've seen so much of this. I mean working with post-traumatic stress veterans and homeless people, that is the goal of life. We we can't just live in a bubble and we can't just always be happy. Three fourths of what we experience is not joy. It's fear and anger and sorrow and and that's part of life. So if you're done with that And you're welcome to it, to allow that stuff to come in without fear, you know, of doing something, you know, that you can't take back. Uh, You can get to richness. And music does that for us. It lets us experience it without the need to express it and break things and hurt people, you know.
1: Well, it's not just richness. I mean, it creates creates order out of chaos. It creates beauty out of what could be ugly. You know, I, I always felt, I used to think about the calling to be an actor, to be an artist, and what is it underneath that drives us? And I used to say, you know, art and creative expression is really elegant,
0: bleeding. (laughs) I love that. Can I write that down? (laughs) Please. Yeah, please do. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. How did you come up with that? I'm crazy. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> I'm crazy.
1: I'm crazy and creative. I'm a creative person. No, really, it just came to me. I said, "Well, how did it come to me?" I was thinking about the fact that even comics, great art, is taking the the pain and the the disordered aspects of life and giving them form and expression and often translating them into beauty, transforming them into beauty. And so the pain for me is that's the bleeding. But when it suddenly becomes this beautiful thing that people appreciate and get something from, now it's elegant.
0: Yes. I'm just thinking of Robin Williams as you're speaking. Oh, God. You know, what an incredible um, talent. Yeah. Yeah, and and there's others too, like Kurt Cobain. Um, too many musicians in our history have have lost their lives too soon, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. Maybe they did what they came to do, and and what that was was to give us their elegant bleeding, you know. Yep. Oh, <laughs> that's that, that's some heavy stuff. And I'm glad that you said it that way because it's so true. It feels like that on stage, you know. You're there and you have to do this thing. And it's not really about Bill or about Lewis who's on stage. It's the conveyance, you know, like when, when you disappear and the puppet takes over.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And
0: I've, I've come off stage at times and I just have to go into the green room and sit there and weep because something happened out there and it was, it wasn't, I don't know what happened, but it affected me, Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, and all you can do is just be with that and just let it, let it happen.
1: Exactly. So you passed through that very dark moment when you could have ended your life. It made you more creative. And then when did you first start helping others to heal through music?
0: So um, like many of us, I was in therapy. And during that time, um, in the sort of early to mid 2000s, I was doing a one man show where I would sort of reveal what's going on in the life of a classical piano player as well as play music of all different genres for people, and it was great fun. And I did this once, and my therapist actually attended, which was a shock to me, but okay, that's fine. And she said afterward, Bill, I run this women's group, and it'd be really great if you came and did that same performance for them, because it is, and she explained in all the psychological terminology what was going on, and I'd never gotten that clear on it before. I'd never had a scientist tell me what it was that I was doing at the piano. So I did that, and it began to mushroom from there. I, I got a call from a, a an organization that cares for the caregivers of Alzheimer's patients. So imagine yourself with a, a parent or a loved one who's got some debilitating disease, and all of a sudden you're the caregiver, but you're a layperson, you don't know what you're doing, and a new level of stress comes into your life. So the Alzheimer's Caregivers Association wanted me to, um, to to explain to them how this thing that I do with music helps care for me, helps mind me in my stress and anxiety. And uh, I did that, and it just began to mushroom. Um... I came to San Diego in the late 2000s and began to work with post-traumatic stress veterans, uh, got involved with a program called Guitars for Vets, which, by the way, is an amazing nonprofit nationwide. They they fund the gift of a free guitar and all the fixings for every veteran who takes 10 lessons. And it's all volunteer instructors, and uh, the founder uh, is himself a Vietnam-era veteran, and wow, does this work? Uh, you can sit right there, Lewis, with someone who's learning to play the guitar, and you can watch the change in real time. You can just watch that change happen. And it's, there's nothing like that. There's no money that you can get paid that makes that, uh, that, that, that compensates for that, you know? Everyone in life should have the ability to see someone else they care about or maybe don't even know, transform that way. That's just, it's so rich.
1: So... so uh,
0: there's, there's the short history for you.
1: That's fabulous. I love it. Uh, do you like jazz?
0: I do. Um, I'm not a proficient jazz player, but the, the guys who can improvise, wow, I'm, I'm blown away. I am just blown away by jazz. Uh, I've had the opportunity to see some of them, and I've learned from them and actually worked closely on a couple of different projects with some top musicians, uh, a guy who played bass for miles back in the day. Uh, Marshall Hawkins, uh, working with Marshall is like going to church. It's just, it's so beautiful. Mm. And, uh, I mean, he knows what my limits are and yet he's willing to give me the time of the day and, you know, play with someone who's nowhere near his level, but who can still make music together. And that kind of a gift is it, it's beyond words. I, there's so many blessings from this life journey that, we could all just tap into, if we we're a little bit more willing to be, you know, take a little risk here and there, see how it goes, there's a, a string quartet out your way that improvises everything. They, they improvise live, and they're all classically trained musicians. It's called uh, Public Quartet, and they play uh, up and down the, the East Coast seaboard. They uh, improvised the last presidential debate. No kidding. Go on Colbert's website. Stephen Colbert had them on live. They improvised the soundtrack to the presidential debate.
1: <laughs> public quartet.
0: Public quartet. P U B L I Q A R T E T. Public quartet.
1: Oh, IQ. Yeah,
0: like public without the C at the end.
1: <laughs> A Q and then uh,
0: And yeah, quartet.
1: Uh, but it's all one word.
0: All one word, yeah. Public. Okay.
1: So, uh Cool, that's Nick cool. And, and, that's Nick and, and the other musician
0: was Marshall Thomas, you said? Marshall Hawkins. So, Marshall yeah. Hawkins. Hawkins. He's played for with everybody. Just an incredible thing. Oh, and as a sidelight. So public quartet likes to go into um, art museums, and they'll improvise in front of a painting, and then they'll move to another painting and improvise in front of that. I learned from Marshall, who grew up in Washington, D.C., that back in the day, um, he and some buddies would be going into the National Museum and doing the same thing.
1: Mm. They'd just pull their
0: instruments in there and they'd stand in front of a painting and they'd jam and they'd go to another one and jam there. That's 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 improvising, you know? That's, that's the real stuff right there.
1: Well, the reason I had asked you about jazz is because I, I fell in love with it in my teens and I remember very vividly John Coltrane. And oh. now you want to talk about a man who just took All of his anger, his rage, his pain, his sorrow, and it came into the saxophone. Yeah. And he changed music with the sounds that he was making. I had the privilege to meet him. Oh, my gosh. In a small club in New York a couple of years before he died when he was playing like his improvising was out there. It was really, you know, and it was just, bearing his soul through that instrument you know
0: he's sublime i have the you know the definitive cd collection back when we still use cds Mm -hmm. i just wanted to get it because it spoke to me in so many ways and you're you're so fortunate to have had a chance to shake the man's hand
1: yeah no it was it was incredible just incredible does music therapy work without traditional therapy? Can it work on its own?
0: I love this question. Um, Full disclosure, I'm not a music therapist. Um, Music therapists are board certified and they've got masters in in music therapy, which does include a a psychotherapy component. And uh, they're doing great work out there. Um, it's, It's an amazing profession for the people who are in it. They're the ones that get into the clinical environment with music. And they get to see uh, what we might call the toughest cases, right? So for myself, uh, just being a musician, I've taken a slightly different approach. In between the music as entertainment side of the house, where you go to concerts and that kind of thing, and the music therapy side of the house, which is definitely clinical and one-on-one, I think there's a big empty place where people can use music intelligently on their own for self-care. Uh, I, I have that sort of, a, as you know from this interview, as an ethos, uh, learning to care for myself uh, through spiritual prayer was a big part of how I was raised. And as I've rolled down the road, I think that music is a, a very holistic way of being able to address a lot of the stuff that we come up against, um, particularly things like trauma that are mental, emotional, and physical, and may even have a spiritual component Um in the veterans world, we like to talk about moral injury, which is the result of having to, to kill things, and uh, which may be completely opposite of your belief system,
1: mm.
0: and that's a whole podcast by itself, but that kind of sort of uh, contradiction can really uh, mess us up, and music can unravel that in a way that that is honest and authentic and kind of releases the negative charge from those moments that have caused us traumatic injury in our lives and we all have them you know human beings are a, we, we live through a life and it it does have its traumatic moments so allowing music to to uh, transform those by taking the edge off if you will leaves us with memories that are healthful even though they might reflect a dark time in our lives uh, they also have some gold you know at the bottom of the well and, uh, and and that, I think, is the point, isn't it, more than anything else? Mm. To just stay with the process, not so much by putting a stake in the sand and saying that was Bill on Thursday and here's Bill on Monday, but saying this process that took place between Thursday and Monday was really amazing, and it's continuing. It, it's ongoing.
1: Mm. It's mm. ongoing. love that, uh, especially with you shared about uh, the vets who have had to kill, and it went against the moral grain.
0: Yes, yes. You know, no music therapist is going to sit there and work with you on how you feel religiously about that. <laughs> but I, but I, don't, I don't have those credentials, so I can talk about mm. it and bring it up. <laughs> mm, mm. right?
1: Right, exactly. That's wonderful. As sort
0: of human to human, rather than therapist to, to patient.
1: And the irony is that that'll go deeper.
0: Ah, you said it. <laughs> no,
1: because the other one, I mean, the other way is becomes talk therapy. It's in the head, but the trauma lives in the body.
0: It does. Uh, you know, so. There's a great book about that. The body keeps the score. It's like everything that we have been is there. And you can either leave it there and it'll fester. Or you can work with it and release it.
1: I have a, a documentary you might want to watch. It's on Netflix. I just saw it last night. It's called Heal. Heal. And it's about real examples of people healing themselves from the most horrendous even like stage four cancer yeah. using mind body work. It's yep. it's quite something. It's very powerful. Very powerful.
0: Now, see, I'm I'm all down with that because um, because of how I was raised. I think that's completely natural.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. And listen, I listen, I wasn't raised that way, but I, for some reason, have always moved in that direction. That was part of the way I began to see things. And anyway, what's the difference between musical therapy and musical care?
0: Okay, so great question. This brings it right down. The real difference is that with music therapy, it's one-on-one, with a board-certified credentialed therapist, a music therapist. So it's a two-person event. Musical care is you doing whatever you do on your own. So no, no therapist required, unless you want to look at yourself as your own therapist. But it's separating your, um, your recovery, your healing, whatever it is that you are tracking to do. The process of that is separate from the therapist who's guiding you through it. There's um, a gray area here, though, because, as you know, there are lots of mentors and coaches and people like that out there. And I like to think of myself as an educator and advisor in that. Um, Not having any clinical background except my own therapy, which doesn't qualify me to be a therapist, I'm very careful to make sure that people understand they can do this on their own, but that music therapy or therapy in any sense is available once you open the door. And there's some scary doors out there if you've just begun, for example, your trauma work. Uh, I hope everybody has a chance to do some trauma work in this life. If you've just started, you might find some pretty dark stuff there. And having a qualified professional help you along through that is really great. It's, it's, it can speed the whole process and perhaps in many cases save you from additional trauma that can come from facing it on your own. You know, it, I, I faced it on my own until I was in my 30s. I didn't even know there was an option, and then I had some therapy, and I realized, oh, I'm doing it right, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I need help. I'm getting help now, and this is going to continue, and, you know, it opens the doors to all the amazing books and wisdom literature that are, that's out there, and in your own discipline, uh, there's, there's people who act for therapy, right, and coaches that are there to coach improv groups into therapeutic results, uh, we're seeing more and more of that. And this whole idea of music care is one more such idea where this this great, powerful thing that we all are wired for from birth, maybe earlier, it's out there, it's available. So what can we do to use it intelligently in our particular scene, whether that's on the battlefield or in the corporate boardroom? It'll work.
1: Mm-hmm. You've referenced a book before, right? That talks about trauma in the body, right?
0: Oh, yes. So the book is by a Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, K-O-L-K, and the title is The Body Keeps the Score. It's about 10 years old now, but it's all about trauma work and how the average person, even though he's a PhD and does a lot of this, how the average person can use what we now know about physiology to help unpack their trauma in a healthful way. And he covers, by the way, a lot of um, modalities, including one that's done in, I think it's upstate New York, um, using theater. After the podcast is over, I'll send you a reference on that so you'll know, because as an actor, you'd be interested. Mm -hmm. It's it's powerful stuff.
1: And uh, Reiki, Reiki works with that kind of thing.
0: It does. I'm a Reiki 2. I didn't get my Reiki 3, but um, I've been doing energy work since I discovered that you could learn it.
1: <laughs> well, and you're really going to love that, that documentary, Heal, because yes. uh, there's a Reiki therapist in it who's doing hands-on work, and it's, it's quite powerful. Now, can people use any music to help them heal their inner wounds?
0: Yes, uh, qualified yes. So I mentioned earlier that the most powerful music for you or for me is the music that we love. Uh, You might love different music than I do. That's fine. The power comes from understanding how the music that you love, your individual music, uh, works on you. So if you were sitting down to listen to, um, let's say we go to the symphony together. Uh, We go to Carnegie Hall and they're playing something by Beethoven. And I happen to love Beethoven and for whatever reason, uh, you're not particularly enamored by that, that particular piece they're playing that night. So there's going to be a different effect on me than on you, and that's totally normal. I'm seven billion people in the world or something like that. Each one of us has a different uh, background that we bring to a listening experience, and I might be there because I really needed to hear that piece of Beethoven music that night. You might be there because you, you know, it's fun to go out together. We had some dinner. We're going to, to sit, listen to a nice concert, so the motivations are different. And the music's effect is different. All those factors come into play. So would I recommend that someone who's angry listen to Metallica? Um, Well, maybe, but it'd be more useful if the person who's angry and want to experience that anger safely put on the music that for them is best for anger. Now, that might be a new thing because, you know, like me, I grew up without uh, pretty much an appreciation of any popular music and what it could do. But I knew what classical music could do, and I've translated that over time. And Metallica works for me when I need to get some anger, bring it up, let it, let it, um, let the intensity move off of that music, let the charge of anger dissipate. Metallica is my go-to. Mm-hmm. It's just you know that's just how it works, and that's fine. If it's Beethoven, that's fine too. So learning to identify your power music, and then knowing how to use it, and how to actually invite that music in is a big part of the power that it has on you. Now, music's going to have a power on you, whether or not you're intentional with it like that. You know, there are people who say, Oh, you know, I was, I was at this concert and they, they, they wouldn't stop playing this music. It just drove me nuts. Get that all the time. That's fine. That's totally fine. Um, that's happening to us. Sound is working on us, whether we know it or not. And uh, if, for an experience of that, if you live in the city, Go out into the country someday and feel how relaxed you are, and then tie that into the sounds of the country and how much different they are than the sounds of the city, which you learn to ignore. Your brain, like, filters out all the sirens and the traffic and the airplanes and all that stuff, but that takes energy. And if you no longer have to do that, and you're in an environment where you can hear birds and the wind and things that you don't hear when you're in the city well, you've just given yourself a huge mental break Mm because your brain isn't working all the time to filter out all that background noise. That's how it works.
1: That's wonderful. You were talking before about musical care. A person can do it on their own, but I mean, if a person is suffering and they want to use music to help them, how would they begin? I mean, they would need some kind of guidance, right?
0: That's a great question. There are so many people out there who soundtrack their lives regularly there's always some music playing and i'm so grateful that we have the ability to distribute music that way now with technology you can literally have music 24 7 around you if that's what you need but for the people who are wondering how to begin well it starts with what you're feeling in this moment so i'll just take you through a really quick kind of short step process on this if you can identify your emotions then you can put music to them. And it works both ways. You might find a piece of music that resonates with you and then determine that that music is making you happy. And at the moment, though, you're sad. How do you get from sad to happy? Well, my way to go through that process is to identify the the, the music that supports you in the moment and the emotion that you are in right now. So if that's sadness, let's play some sad music. Let's let that music play and let's Really experience that sadness on purpose. Let it go. Um, if, if it makes you cry, great. If it, if you just sit there and kind of whimper, if you just like resist it, that happens too. Doesn't matter. Let the sadness come up with intent. You can't cry all your life. I mean, it, I suppose it's possible, but there's going to be a point where you will have played out that emotion and you'll just get tired of feeling it. I mean, like me in the chair that night, when I woke up, I wasn't weeping anymore, yeah, I'd been asleep, but I also didn't feel like crying. There'd been some sort of a change. I felt like I was done with that emotion. I didn't know what was coming next, but I felt like I was done. And very often, the music will take you to a place where you feel sort of neutral. You're not sad, you're not happy, you're just in that moment in between where nothing has really triggered the next emotion yet. So the idea is to allow your music to carry you to that neutral place, so you can then choose what happens next instead of just being at the whim of whatever comes along and, and yanks your emotions off in its direction. So if happiness is where you want to go, we'll start by experiencing where you are. If that's sad, great. If you're angry, put on the music that, that supports your anger and then let that thing fully play itself out. Once you're done, you can choose happy and then play the happy music. That's a, that's a change, right? Because most people go, oh, I'm sad. I'd rather be happy. They put on happy music right away, and all that happens is their sadness gets stuffed. <laughs> then you wind up with this un, unreleased well of sadness that you haven't released uh, that's clogging up the works, right? You, you need to let that stuff go. And it's a beautiful thing to feel that, those emotions deeply, as you know.
1: Yeah, I love that. Even the
0: scary ones. Even you know, Fear is a beautiful thing, provided that it doesn't involve any like real danger to you. but don't we love going to horror flicks right and suspense thrillers
1: And and we demand that they really scare us
0: oh yeah to the as far as possible so we know how to do this and once you have some practice at it first of all the scary movies aren't quite as scary anymore which is sort of a letdown but secondly you know that you can access that fear when you need it and we all do there are times where we need to be on our guard and take evasive action and, you know, do the, do the right thing to protect our family or whatever it is. So having some practice with those emotions helps to take the charge out of them so they don't trigger us quite so forcefully when triggers come along. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to get cut off in traffic and road rage is going to be right there for you. And if you've got a way to handle it, you're cool. But, you know, for heaven's sake, don't, <laughs> don't shake your fist or cut somebody off on purpose or, you know, create more of a hazard because your own rage is out of control.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Let that thing uh, be, raise awareness of that, but then do some rage work with whatever music makes you angry before you um, have to go back out on the freeway. (laughs) Yes, yes. From experience. (laughs) Southern California, man, we've got the crazy drivers here.
1: They have them everywhere. You emphasize practical hard skills. What are they and how do they relate to music?
0: There is a research organization up in the Bay Area called HeartMath, H-E-A-R-T-Math, M-A-T-H. And their purpose in life is to help make the connection between the mental stuff and the emotional stuff. And they've done research and they have apps and it's a very, very cool thing. So I call that um, reducing it down to practice I call that practical heart skills. So what is it about our emotions that can turn into useful things that you can apply in daily life? I think we've ignored a lot of these things, Lewis, because science is kind of taking us on a a different journey. Science wants to say, well, the only way that we'll believe that it works is if there's evidence. And I respect that. That's fine. But what if there's something that works that doesn't have the kind of scientific evidence today that we have come to rely on uh, here's a good example compassion uh, buddhism has been around for a long time so is christianity so is islam there's compassionate practices in all of those monotheistic religions i'm sorry buddhism isn't monotheistic but there's compassionate practices that work they really work Offering compassion is a is a heart skill, a practical heart skill that can solve a lot of um, emotional issues, specifically contentious ones. And we have quite a bit of contention in the world right now. Another one that's getting a lot of play right now is gratitude and appreciation. Those are practical heart skills. You got to learn them. You know, it's it's hard to go out there and express genuine appreciation if you haven't really learned how that feels. And We teach our kids to say thank you, right, when they're growing up. Please and thank you. Those are practical heart skills that are tied directly into gratitude and appreciation, which are powerful, powerful things that can spur healing in the body of all kinds of stuff. Uh, They can certainly create cooperation and connection between individuals in ways that, say, anger and resentment don't. (laughs) So, and, And yes, by the way, Anger and resentment are also practical heart skills, but they aren't as effective as gratitude and appreciation. So it's kind of like choosing your uh, choosing the, the repertoire that you want to perform. Mm-hmm. You can stick with the ones that are out there and that, you know, greed goes a long way in our society, let's face it. But does it really have a longevity and a resilience to it? No, you can take greed down with, like, one well-placed call to the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's taking down uh, Elon Musk, as a matter of fact. And he's cool. But, well, you know, you've got to think a little bit more broadly before you smoke a joint on national TV. <laughs> there's people out there for whom that is not a compassionate act. And if you aren't aware of that, uh, there's a price to pay for that. So it's it's a process and learning. So... Um, There's a few practical heart skills. I like to think of honesty and respect as a couple of very powerful practical heart skills. Um, All of these things contribute to readiness and resiliency, which the U.S. Army has recognized, none less than the U.S. Army has recognized that spiritual readiness is a part of what it means to be an effective combat soldier. So you've gotta be on your game with all of those practical heart skills, the ones that help guide your emotion, the ones that help guide how you think, before you can actually take your physical self out and expect to be successful in combat. Because you're going to have doubts, you know, and if you're not ready to respond to those with confidence, uh, there's a problem. And you're going to be in situations where you might pull the trigger or might not, and you have to know the difference. And that's something that takes compassion and respect. And so, uh, and
1: how do you relate this to music?
0: Well, music kind of opened this up to me.
1: Ah, okay.
0: So, the, the title of this podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, um, I've been aware for a long time of how important it is to use language that, uh, that helps sustain us rather than takes us down. Mm. Um, negative self-talk is really, really damaging. And um, we've had so the NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming is big on this. Uh, My religious tradition of Christian science is big on this. Choosing words to describe ourselves that are healthful is huge. And if your story is all full of uh, negative stuff, what do you think you're going to live? Of course. If you're you're talking about yourself in a positive way, that's the first step. If you're thinking about yourself in a positive way, that's the first step. Those things support success and support growth. But I I will say this, because we have a need in our world for... um, For the angst and the anger that's in a lot of, uh, not so much anymore, it's changing, but in a lot of rap and hip-hop, there's a lot of that angst there. And people say, well, that's angry music, these are angry people. And then I'm thinking to myself, and you're not angry? (laughs) But think of the power of the rappers who are saying it, right, who are getting it out there. Mm -hmm. They're not doing it. And it might sound like they're encouraging people to go out there and break things and hurt people if they're not getting their way, you know. And that's that, there is an aspect of that that we need to be a, very aware of. But in the music itself, if you can experience that without having to go out there and pull the trigger on somebody, that's growth. So we, we, we need to have this music around us to help sort of mirror our society and also give our society a way of being able to feel it without having to act on it. And uh, that's, you know, that's real powerful. I'm going
1: to tell you something that really relates to this that um, is it's probably shocking to people. There's a playwright, he was, I mean, he's, he's gone now, he's, he died. His name was Leroy Jones, okay. a revolutionary black writer, very, very big in the Black Revolution when the Black Panthers were in power. In fact, he eventually changed his name to Imamu Amiri Baraka. He gave up the Leroy Jones name because he was part of the the whole intellectual group around Columbia University with Allen Ginsberg and Oh, yeah, you yeah. know. But he eventually broke ties with them. But anyway, he wrote his powerful play called Dutchman, and in it, the central character has this explosive monologue where he's talking about white people, he says, you know, he says these finger-popping Ofe's who, who, um, you know, talk about Charlie Parker and Bessie Smith and how cool their music is, etc. He says they don't realize that if Charlie Parker had walked onto 7th Avenue and killed the first white man he saw, it would have made one song, unnecessary. Wow. Yeah. Think about that.
0: Yeah. You know, my my musical tradition is heavily influenced by black American music. I learned ragtime when I was a kid. Mm. And uh, I've grown up in the the tradition of pop music that includes Louis Armstrong and Fats Waller and Oscar Peterson and Marshall Hawkins and Bessie Smith. And just, you know, you can... There there are innumerable people who have shaped our world. Um, Charlie Parker. Mm -hmm. And uh, and even this guy, uh, Leroy Jones. So it it affects all genres of the creative um, arts. And I I wouldn't be where I am right right now without songs like Amazing Grace.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: It's it's impossible to, to be in the musical world and be racist. You can't do it, it doesn't work. And you get the impact of the cultural. People say, you know, you can't see everyone without color. And I believe that because you have to see the black music that has influenced America for what it is. And that's a cultural influence. It's not a color influence, it's a cultural influence. And it would, devoid of color, it wouldn't be the same. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It, it, same thing goes for the western composers in in Europe and it, just name it all there 's a cultural thing here that 's so rich, and we can 't shut that out we we 've got to welcome that in
1: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm.
0: I'm i'm going to go out there now and find Dutchman because that 's my thing you know that's well, the kind of stuff it comes uh,
1: it's in a there are two plays in one book it 's called it's Dutchman and the slave, the slave. or the are the two plays, yeah, but Dutchman. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very powerful piece of theater. It really is. Um,
0: this has been an amazing cultural experience for me. I I get to work with music a lot, but now you're opening me up to some uh, to some theater out there that I really need to engage with. Oh, ah,
1: fabulous. Wonderful. Tell us a bit about your book, More Than Human.
0: Ah, so More Than Human, which the subtitle is... Uh, I'm trying to think of it's the power. I want to say the power, but it isn't. It's it's using spiritual practical practice, practical practice of the spiritual in your organization. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means that you're teaching your organization to be more compassionate. You're teaching it to be more respectful. You know, kind of putting back into the day-to-day language practices that sometimes fall off the the radar in giant bureaucracies, or even small entrepreneurisms. So the book sort of chronicles how that works and why it works and why it's important to stay on top of that versus kind of allowing the more, I hate to say baser instincts, but the more default settings. Like I kind of feel like greed is a default setting, and that's an okay thing if you're also giving back out of your large S. But we are in a situation in the world right now where, Lots of money is accumulating with people who are not sort of giving it back in a in a societal way that helps us. I'm not advocating for a government solution or socialism or anything like that. I'm simply advocating for what I call empathy or maybe exchange. If I've done something for you and you compensate me in some way, that's an equal exchange. But I don't feel like all the money I'm spending with Amazon is really going to back into society in some helpful way to end homelessness, for example. It, it, that kind of a thing in the big picture is how you can step up from your individual practice of spiritual attributes to something larger. So More Than Human is about that. It's about being more than just a human being. It's about being um, coming from the heart, coming from the spirit, uh, coming from a place that's bigger than just putting food on the table the next day because you know there's going to be another day after tomorrow, too. And how are you going to approach that day?
1: So do you you also deal with music in that book?
0: You know, I do, because music opens us up to that. It can shut us down, too. I'll be honest with you. It works both ways. Great power comes great responsibility. So which side of the equation are you going to go on? But this whole thing about how music works on us so powerfully has started to have offshoots for me in other ways. Um, And, of course, acting spiritually. That's a big word, I know. So... Throw out your belief system for a second and just think about the things that you do that are, say, um, humorous. We could be counteracting the whole angst in the world right now if all of us were better comedians. (laughs) Not sarcastic
1: Oh, I know. I believe that, yeah.
0: (laughs) Right? So I think of humor as a spiritual practice and uh, chronicle that in the book as well as others. Gratitude, we talked about that, appreciation, respect, honor. Um, Hey, if they work in the army, right, why why can't we make them work in, uh, quote, civilian life? (laughs) which <laughs> is, it just as full of trauma as it is, you know, if you're in a combat zone. So, um, more and, than human and, it's, and it's and an so, instruction manual for
1: that. So that book is, and do they use it in businesses? Yeah.
0: Yes. Um, it was on Amazon. I think I released it on the day of the, the last lunar eclipse. Remember that? Or maybe no solar eclipse. When was it last? In 2017 when the, the sun went out for a while. Okay. That that was the release day, and it hit bestseller list on the first, di- first day out because, you know, that's pretty easy to do these days, and a lot of people picked it up and used it, and um, it's been uh, – not only did the Army, like, sort of break the mold on that, but I got to be part of a Veterans Services Organization uh, committee that investigated spiritual practices in our, our VSO, our Veterans Support Organizations, Veterans Service Organizations um, world out here in San Diego – and out of that experience, uh, I got this book. So I said, what the heck? I'll write this thing and put it out there, and people may find it useful. And So go for Amazon. It's out there.
1: Do you also, <laughs> so, have, do you also have another book?
0: I do. Uh, I published a book of drawings by an artist. Um, he got to draw, draw in life portraits of homeless people back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And when he told me about this, he knows that I volunteer extensively in homeless services, um, I said, oh gosh, I gotta see these. We ought to, we ought to get these out there. And long story short, we did. And it's a beautiful book, and we've made it available uh, at no charge to agencies who want to use it as a tool to help their donors engage with homeless services at a deeper level. It's all about that human to human connection, you know. What's Breaking the book? Down the What's third the ball. book?
1: What's it called?
0: Yeah, if you wanted to go get it, um, it'd be difficult, but you can find it out there. It's not for sale, but. You know, look for it and ask an agency because they'll help you get one. It's called In Our Eyes, In Our Words, Portraits from the Edge of Society.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's a beautiful book. Um, it's up for a, um Independent Publishers Award of the Year this year. And if that happens, you'll see me in New York, Lewis.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I'll come out.
1: I'm actually in Toronto, you know.
0: Oh, gosh, I had you on the East Coast, but that's close.
1: Well, I, I am on the East Coast.
0: You are, yeah. Toronto,
1: Toronto's, of Toronto's on the east coast, yeah. And it's portraits from the edge of the world.
0: Portraits from the edge of society.
1: Of society. Yeah. I'm from New York, but I live in Toronto. Now, what is your favorite book besides your own?
0: Oh gosh, <laughs> I would hardly call my own books my favorite. Well, let's see. Most recently, I've been influenced by the Harry Potter series. Uh, I have had many favorites over the years, and I read a lot of poetry. So the poems of David White, W-H-Y-T-E, are very meaningful to me. I've had a chance to meet David, and uh, he's a marvelous individual. I, I, I don't think I could nail it down to just one. That's okay. I mean, put me on the spot, I, no, I don't think I'd okay. be able to answer that.
1: Do you have a favorite quote?
0: Oh, yeah. Be the, be the change you want to see in the world. I think that's a Gandhi quote. It's
1: a Gandhi quote, yeah. It's yeah. a very famous one.
0: And my second favorite from Superman, with great power comes great responsibility. I think that got co-opted by Spider-Man. <laughs> Toby Maguire is the one I remember saying that. But people have told me it's in Superman. So
1: I didn't even realize that, yeah.
0: These are great um, aphorisms that are timeless, of course. Somebody probably said them before we were born.
1: Probably did. How can people contact you?
0: Best way, practicalheartskills.com, because that's easy to remember. But Google Bill Protsman or Music Care, you'll find me. I've done a ton of writing, and if, if you search for me, Bill Protzman, you'll find uh, articles on places like your tango and Psychology Today, and you'll find a website, billprotzman.com, and you'll find Music Care. and. It's, you know, when, see, you, when you're at this for a while, it gets out there.
1: I pronounced your name Protzmann at the beginning.
0: Oh, you're correct. Yes. Oh, oh it, uh, is. it is. I see. So the German, uh, German form has gotten sort of Americanized. I, Prozmann, see, I see.
1: I see. I see. And, and it's uh, P-R-O-T-Z-M-A-N-N. Protzman. Correct. Any final thoughts for our storytellers today?
0: Well, it's not over. So when you finish this chapter, keep writing. Keep writing, because there's more chapters to come.
1: I love that. And what I will say to um, the storytellers, since this show is, change your story, change your life. You've just experienced a, a very deep and different take on changing your story. Because it's not about, well, it is in a way about changing the language. But you've heard Bill's powerful story about how he went from a narrative that said, your life is useless, kill yourself tonight, to using music that transformed that story into I like and I love life and I'm going to be creative and help the world to appreciate life. That's a powerful change of story. Amen. So for you, storytellers, is there some story that's causing you a lot of pain? Relax, breathe, listen to some music and see how you can change it into something that serves you and empowers you.
0: Well said, Lewis.
1: Thank you. Thank you, storytellers, for being part of this experience today to help you enrich the experience even more. I've created a gift for you, an ebook called "Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business." You can get instant access to it right now by going to changeyourstorypodcast dot com and downloading your free copy. Also take advantage of the gift. ...that our sponsor, Audible, is offering to the listeners of this show. That is a free audiobook of your choice, and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. In the spirit of giving, I'm going to ask you to give me a few more moments of your time by going to iTunes and in the podcast category, finding Change Your Story, Change Your Life. And where you see that you can leave a brief review and a star rating, in the review, just state what your biggest takeaway was from today's episode. And I hope that I've earned a five-star rating from you. When you do that, you're telling iTunes to allow the show to climb the ranks. Then more people will find it and be able to enjoy it. If you haven't already subscribed to the show and you're getting value from it, then subscribe while you're visiting iTunes. One final thought. Whenever you find yourself facing a decision that's hard to make, stop. Don't let your mind work hard. Just take a deep breath and then ask, how can I change my story and change my life? Then pause for a moment and allow the answer to come to you. I look forward to sharing another enriching experience with you on the next episode. Tune in to the next episode of Luis
0: DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.